Hello and welcome to the Monday show here on the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Musgrove, and joined as usual by Aaron Stokes. We're here a few days after Newcastle United's victory over Sunderland's. We're going to have a bit of a deep dive into how Newcastle got that victory, what the long-term impact might be, and what's to come in the transfer market. There's also the small matter of Fabian Cher extending his stay on Tynes, and just how happy are you guys about that, and who might be next We'll discuss all that and more. Please hit subscribe and please share the episode. Aaron, how are we keeping still on cloud nine after Saturday's result? Of course I am. I mean, looking back, what on earth were we so worried about? And when I say we, I obviously mean me, who has spent the last two or three weeks petrified. Andrew, for those who didn't get the chance to see him on Saturday, was as cool as a cucumber all morning while I was sat there uh, pre-match, absolutely racked with nerves. Um, But yes. Nerves do no one any good. Well, yeah, I don't usually get nervous at a lot of things, but Derby Day, after the the scars are still there from six in a row, and I was very, very worried about the bragging rights going back to Sunderland, but this is Eddie Howe's Newcastle United. There was never any need to panic, was there? In hindsight, I was I was excited. I'm going up the stairs to our seats. I kind of hugged you and said, well, yeah, I can't believe it. We're so privileged to be in this position. And I have to say, actually, it's a long time since I've been in the press box at the stadium. I think the last time I was there was when Sunderland faced Burton. It didn't go particularly well for them. Um, it's an interesting little uh, position, the press box. You're right in amongst the Sunderland fans. And it got quite feisty, didn't it? It did, yeah. And I think there's been a lot of discourse on social media over the last couple of days as to what the Newcastle away end was actually like. A lot of Sunderland fans, maybe out of spite, are saying... You know, Newcastle fans didn't make any noise. And I feel like I can't really comment on that because of where we were in the stadium. All you really got the flavour of was how passionate at times the Sunderland fans were. They were really, really raw in the morning. They were voicing their concern, I think, after the second goal went in. Um, but yeah, that press box, I think I think I prefer the Newcastle one where you pitch side rather than up in the gods. There's less stairs <laughs> yeah, to get very to Newcastle so, United yeah. uh, press box. Yeah, Michael Beale was taking a bit of a pelton from from some once the, the, the third goal went in. And yes, you're right about the away ends. I did text a few people who and you were in the away end just to ask about what the atmosphere was like because again from where we were sitting, we don't want, we couldn't really make a proper judgment. And they said actually for those sitting in the upper tier it was absolutely fantastic. And mm-hmm. a few people sitting in the lower tier said it, w- it was great as well, especially once the first goal went in. Um, I think the nerves kind of uh, disappeared. We also have to talk, Aaron, just briefly. I mean, the Wi-Fi went down, didn't it, at yeah. the game? Um, I-, I was on it till about the 89th minute or so, so I could still, I could do your job, the job mm-hmm. you were meant to be doing, <laughs> and live blog it for our wonderful uh, viewers who were on our website. Um, but we had to make a dash for the Metro, didn't we? Because yeah. we couldn't actually do any work after the game. And it now turns out that the whole stadium was Wi-Fi-less and there are reports that Newcastle fans were getting drinks for free because the card payments wouldn't work. Now, some sceptics might say that maybe someone flicked the switch intentionally. <laughs> we can't say that for certain. I've seen a few claims of that. I'm not saying that is what happened. But, um, yeah, a funny old day down at the Stadium of Light. Well, yeah, I mean, the Wi-Fi was cutting out for me first 15 minutes. I thought, oh, this is no good. Get me back to the, the comfort of St. James's Park where you never have those issues. And then obviously, with like you say, about 70, 75 minutes in the game, it went off for everyone. Every single journalist in that press box, which was there was about 120 in total, all trying to scramble on the hotspot and ringing their editors. So if any Chronicle Live readers were wondering why the match report ratings and five things and all the analysis was about two hours later than scheduled, um, that's because a few of our colleagues had to drive to McDonald's to get on their Wi-Fi uh, outside the, the Sunderland City Centre. So 
Um, look, it was a bad day for us in that sense. Um, but as you say, Newcastle United fans in the way end getting their free drinks, they won't be complaining. Yeah, they had a, an extra win. I will actually give two wins to Sunderland, right, despite the result for them. One, the cheapest city centre stage in parking I think I've ever come across. <laughs> the metro station just over the road, so we could park there for one twenty all day. Unbelievable. And also, right, the players' entrance. Now, I was fortunate. I know I can see you pulling your face, right? But I actually think Newcastle United could do with the players' entrance like Sunderland because the way they get off the bus, they come up the stairs, they're out in the open, you've got fans either side. Now, I was fortunate enough to basically be on them stairs. You've probably seen me in a clip of the official uh, footage with my camera about trying to film people. And I actually think it adds to the atmosphere. Whereas in Newcastle, it's kind of closed in. You can still see them. But I, I, I honestly do think that's the one thing I took away from, like, kind of a, a, a thinking, you know, from from the, the game really was, or not the game, but the, the, the off-field action was, I wouldn't mind that kind of set up at, at St James's Park. I actually agree with you, but the reason I was pulling the face is because when you said the words players' entrance, I thought you meant the players coming out the pitch to the theme tune of oh, The Apprentice. Oh, goodness me. And I was no. thinking, we do not need any classical music Um it reminded us of Alan Sugar in the boardroom when they were walking out with, well, with that. Just those on, strings. on that, my uh, my wife, she actually seriously wanted to walk down the aisle to uh, Wise Men Say. And until I explained to her why on earth that would never happen in a million <laughs> months of Sundays, um, thankfully it didn't happen. And we actually uh, we walked into the venue, actually, two local heroes. So I yeah, got so did my, my best friend the other month as well. But go on, just on the players. For those who don't know, and basically, like I say, that the bus pulls up and the players have to get off the bus, walk up the stairs, through the doors. And on either side, you have, uh, well, the Sunderland fans in this instance. And it did it did set the tone for the afternoon, I felt. You know, the chants and the, the, the booing and the, and the jeering, mm-hmm. it really did set the tone. It really set you up for what was a ferocious derby. And honestly, I do think Newcastle need a bit of that. Um, it's in James's Park. Yeah, it was very, very lively outside the stadium, wasn't it? As you would expect. You obviously, for anyone who's seen or hasn't seen your videos on social media, you had a front row seat as you sort of managed to sneak your way in beyond the security, uh, keeping your head down. Obviously, at Newcastle, it's not really like that, especially not for the home players who come in the side entrance, they walk pitch side, they sort of meander in. It's all very low key. There's a few journalists sort of sat out there waiting to see who's made it in the squad, who hasn't. You don't really get that sort of. You get it a little bit with the away fan, uh, sorry, the away team who obviously come through the, the main entrance. But yeah, um, that player's entrance, I'll agree with you. The one I thought you meant, definitely. <laughs> and I just want to also talk about, finally, before we talk about some football, is the pre match display. What did you make of it? I know we're spoiled here um, because of what war flags do, and I'm not here to take the Michael out of the volunteers of Sunderland because it's it's hard work for them and plaudits to them. You know that they laid out all the, the banners and the flags and what have you. You know that is great to see. It's great to see any set of fans doing that. So I'm not here to take the Michael out of them, but just we say it, it didn't. You, when you look at it, 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 it didn't it didn't set the tone like war flags displays do. And I know maybe they haven't got the experience of doing it, maybe they didn't have the time to turn it around, but it just felt a little bit blah. Yeah, the the weird side, as as you've mentioned, was a little bit weird. Weird side with an exclamation mark. The, the, some letters bigger than the other. Font really weird. You obviously had the tin foil um, waivers in the, the the north stand or the south stand, and then you had sort of recycled bits of paper from the remembrance service that they did two months ago for the rest of it. And I think Sunderland fans made seventeen thousand pounds to have that display. Um, 
there's been some suggestion on social media from Sunderland fans that maybe not all of that money had been spent on it. Um, just dive in there, say, yeah, we, say legally, we, we don't know what's going on there. That it's is just, just opinion, some people's opinion. opinion. Um, and I think it's, you know, the spirit of 37 who have done all these displays the last couple of weeks at Sunderland have actually came out and said, you know, we're going to step down now and we're going to leave it. And I think, um, I don't think there's too many Sunderland fans maybe, you know, upset at that decision we'll leave it at that yeah and just say those allegations are allegations <laughs> and they, well, I've got the right reply so we'll leave that there um, but yeah well, like I say not here to take the, the make out of those who volunteered and set up the display I just didn't think it installed the fear in, in the Newcastle United players or squad that maybe they would have hoped for right shall we talk about a bit of, about the football yeah what were the key elements then to Newcastle United's victory against Sunderland um, look I think I think you'll agree from here. I think it was more Sunderland not being at their best than Newcastle being at their brilliant barnstorm and best that we've seen from Eddie Howe the last couple of years. Um, I think Michael Beale got it all wrong tactically. And me and a colleague were just talking um, in the office earlier today about if you know Tony Mowbray, who's just went and signed for Birmingham, obviously it's hindsight. I think Sunderland would have had a much better chance if he'd still been in the job. Um I think Michael Beale got it wrong. I think Sutherland set up a trying to play out the back. I think they just could not deal with the press of Newcastle. Um, and, you know, we don't really need to say about the three goals that were gifted Newcastle. An own goal, a defensive howler and a penalty. Um, and, you know, that was enough for, for the away side. The fact that Michael Beale's come out and said it's kind of... Uh, he didn't say it was a good thing, but he said it's something that we can, we can learn from. Feedback is what he actually said. Does that suggest that he had a defeatist attitude coming into the game, perhaps. I think if you if you watch the first half or the first sixty minutes, Sunderland really, I mean, there's, there's not laying a glove on your castle, but then there's actually not actively trying to lay a glove on your castle. There was no real urgency. Yes, there was tackles flying in and players were trying to jay up the thing, but there was no real. Okay, we're going to really try and stick it to Newcastle here. Newcastle had a lot of possession, seventy-two percent in the first half. Um, Newcastle could be patient and Sunderland just for whatever reason couldn't really get at them until it was 2-0 and it was maybe too late. I think um, Sunderland will look back on the first half especially with a little bit of regret. Of course they will, definitely. Newcastle to me looked nervous on the ball. I know we disagree slightly yeah, about the, the control Newcastle had in that first half but for me they were they were lumping the ball forward to Isaac at times but it was hopeful rather than clinical. There were passes going out, there were passes going to the opposition and I think that's the one mistake from a Sunderland point of view that they'll, they'll look back and think mm, did we just not push hard enough because I honestly do think before Newcastle got the goal they were they were looking a little bit rabbit in the headlights in some instances and I think there was a chance for Sunderland to push them to hurry them and an opportunity maybe would have come but as soon as that first goal goes in Newcastle settle they get into their rhythm and there's really only one winner I think from that moment I think Newcastle set the tone whereas Sunderland really should have at home you know but they've came out to these you know whether we agree on the display being good or not they've came out with their home fans they've got the advantage can they put Newcastle in the pressure early doors and they just didn't they just let Newcastle United have the ball for the first 15-20 and yes I, I do sort of get your point about you know Newcastle weren't really keeping it too well in the first 20 but they didn't have to. They could just be patient and knock it about and they started keeping it a lot better and obviously they wore them down towards the end of the first half. Sudden, uh, sorry, then um, shoot themselves in the foot once again 30 seconds into the second half, the absolute worst possible start to the second half. And then, it, as I said, it wasn't really until then 
that you actually started to see the home side actually giving it a go. I was actually a little bit nervous for about 10 or 15 minutes at 2-0 because Pritchard obviously had two very good efforts. Uh, very good save from Dubravka to keep one of them out or two of them out actually, save one with his feet as well. Um, but it just felt like too little too late for Sunderland. And I think I completely agree. If And some of the fans were saying this in front of us as well, obviously, given that we could hear pretty much everything they were saying. They were saying, come on, you know, this is a derby. Why are you not... You know, trying to be on the front foot a little bit more, and it's hard because of the the golfing squads and the golfing talent. And let's not forget, this Sunderland team is very, very young. Um, brand new manager who they've only had sort of three or four games under. A lot of them league one standard. Let's be completely honest. But I think they will look back at it and think, you know what, Newcastle United lost seven of the last eight. We're at home. We could have maybe tried to turn the screw a little bit yeah. early doors. I think Pritchard was probably the only one that looked like he was capable of doing something. The other players that we expected to maybe hate Newcastle didn't turn up and I'm going to speak about Joe Bellingham later on in the show but as, as bad as Sunderland were um, Newcastle had to be on their A game it's a derby anything can happen they've come into this in a bad run of form maybe the mood isn't as high as, as you'd like so things were against Newcastle coming into this game and you've got to beat what's out in front of you and I think the key battle was in the midfield and it was won in the first half I thought primarily thanks to Joe Linton yeah, it was. I thought he was absolutely fantastic um, in, in the open 44 minutes or whatever it was until he sort of picked up that little knock, uh, which was really the only negative of the of not just the day, but the full week. Let's just let's just take a step back and talk about the week because I've actually got some written down here. It wasn't just the fact Newcastle have beaten Sunderland. Sunderland, over the course of the week, have moved their season ticket home fans out of the, their normal seats to accommodate more Newcastle fans. They've then decorated their stadium in black and white um, before having to do a massive U-turn and then calling for the board to resign two days before match. Um, on the day, you've got Dan Byrne walking into the stadium, cupping his ears, you've got Tyndall giving it large. They then give Newcastle three goals, an old goal, a howler and a penalty, without really laying a finger on them all afternoon. Free bar for the away fans at the end. And then a little bit of a Twitter meltdown. And people that are watching live or people that are listening later, please let me know because I will definitely have forgotten moments from the game and the week that actually made Newcastle look fantastic and Sunderland look bad. It was the worst possible week for Sunderland and it was the best part of the week for Newcastle at a time they really needed it. Um, I can't remember what we're talking about. I just talked about, to... talk about the key the key uh, battle in the midfield and Joe Linton being absolutely ace and Bruno looking back to his best. And, and, and I've just home. gone on a big tangent. About... That's fine, you're excited <laughs> and you're right with everything you list. It, you know, the game... I think the preparation for Sunderland would have been massively affected by what happened in the build-up. You know, especially the, the the Sunderland lads in that team, they'll be getting messages off off their, their their parents, off their family, saying what on earth is going on. When really, all Michael Beale would have wanted was the focus to be on the football. And as much as they might say it was always on the football, you can't but allow that to creep in. Whereas Eddie Howe, Jason Tinnell, all they had to do really is just sit, sit back and watch, watch the implosion. And that allowed them to focus even more on, on getting the work done on, on the tra training pitch. And it did pay off. You could see that Newcastle had done their homework on, on Sunderland, definitely. And you have to applaud the, the, the staff for doing that. And then I also just felt you saw players step up to the challenge as well, because against Forrest and against Luton, let's be honest, the, the fight... And I said that I felt the leaders had gone missing, yeah. gone hiding. And if you come to this game and you hide, you will get punished despite the fact you're a better squad. You will get found out in a derby. 
but you could li- you could list pretty much the whole well you could you could you could list the whole team is is, is stepping up and, and, and showing it the fight and the leadership and it was there from the very start with the challenges and then as the game went on I've got a few moments written down you know you've got um, you've got uh, Kieran Trippier telling Miguel Almiron to get up off the floor when you cast on attack and he's, then he's putting him in a position I thought that's a really good moment of leadership you've got Sean Longstaff going over to Luke nine after he's taken out Lewis Mayne and saying come on you want to pick on someone your own size and those are just like the little moments of leadership which I think have been lacking in recent weeks where I actually do honestly feel like Newcastle they weren't united against Luton and Forest there was mm. something missing they weren't all pulling in the same direction but against Sunderland when in maybe one instance it's actually harder to unite when you haven't been when you've been disunited is this really the game you want coming up to, to prove your worth it either goes very badly or goes very good yeah. it went very good for Newcastle it did yeah and just to circle back perfectly to your initial point I think it was one in the midfield because more than anyone in that first half, especially, you had Juno, uh, Jolinton and Bruno flying into those titles and winning a lot of them. So that when Sunderland even had a little sniff of maybe catching them on a break or anything, it was it was snuffed out instantly. Um, really professional, patient, calm, composed performance. Um, Sunderland fans, not that there'll be any listening to this, but they'll say, well, you know, what can you expect? The gulf is so big between these two squads. But as you say... That game could have gone horribly wrong for Newcastle, as I was telling everybody last week. Sunderland could have caught them on another bad day. They couldn't. Have, they could have been disunited. Sunderland could have, you know, found a real spark under Beale. Um, but Newcastle didn't let them. I thought Eddie Howe mentioned it at the end. Very physical game, but he was glad that it was a really professional job from his players. The referee, I thought, let a few challenges go. Actually, very early on, the long staff one. I can't remember who it was. It was on. It was kind of a fifty-fifty, and both of them went flying in the challenge. And I actually probably do think it was a it was a foul in Sunderland's favour. But the referee just lets it go on. And there were a few instances of that, and I think that was quite a good thing as as well because again, it just sets the tone. It allows the players to get a feel for what's to come. And again, just reaffirm: if you go hiding in this fixture, you might as well uh, catch the bus home. Yeah, and and I thought the referee in general had a very, very good game and I was a little bit concerned given that it was Craig Porson who had obviously made the Calvert-Lewin mistake on VAR last week, um, two days before the time we had Derby. I was also very, very worried that there was no VAR to overturn it and actually it was very weird to hear Eddie Howe asked about it at the end and he said, I really enjoyed this afternoon without VAR and I bet you were stood there going... Yeah. I've been banging the drum for months and finally people are listening. But I, I did, I thought there was no real, you know, the only real controversial decision I can remember is Isaac in the first half going down. Um, I didn't think it was Penny. The I still don't have to watch it back. I can't decide. I've watched it a couple of times. In real time, I thought it was. Watching the first replay in the stadium, I thought it wasn't. And now I'm starting to think. I've seen a few people claim that Luca Nine should have been sent off for the challenge on Miley. Is it? Is he gone in high no and reckless? Uh, not a chance for me. I think it was just a very firm tackle um, from a player who needed to try and get the crowd up and thought that's the only way to do it. But I know that. that I know we've got to try and be unprofessional, but that was a very funny moment just after, wasn't it? When he fist pumps the year after taking a 17 year old out on the turf. I mean, he's clearly just seen Bruno celebrate a tackle 30 seconds later and thought, there's my inspiration. But well, I, th- I think that's, that's Luke O'Nine's trademark. I think he's done that before. He's, Sunderland fans love him because he's all passionate. It was but was proper actually, half-hearted, though, wasn't it? He didn't even fully extend his arm. to. And st- also, you're 2-0 down. You know, exactly. Maybe focus on getting back into the game before you fist pump. He, he the came across like a pound shop, Bruno. And there was also a very, very good moment moments later when 
Isaac sets Gordon up for the penalty and Luke Owen tries to do another tackle yes. of that nature and Isaac doesn't even touch the ball and it just rolls past him. Um, and that's to me where the experience in the key yeah. you know, is key because you don't want to lose your head in that situation at 2-0. It's a very dangerous scoreline and by diving in there, he's just set the, the, the ball away for Gordon to go and, to win the penalty when actually he stays on his feet, keeps his head he probably wins that challenge and Sunderland are still within a chance of getting a goal back. They grab a goal and goodness knows what happens here at home. Maybe the crowd will finally wake up. So, again, just the experience probably coming through there. Um, let's talk about Miguel Almiron. Um, I haven't checked my uh, PO box yet, but I'm, <laughs> I'm suspecting the applications are once again flooding in mm. to join the Miguel Almiron fan club because he had an absolutely superb performance. He had the most tackles of the day. He had the highest pass accuracy with 90%. And the assist for Isaac in the second half was absolutely superb. He needed that performance, didn't he? Oh, he definitely did. Um, really good performance at the perfect time. Um, I wrote about this yesterday and, and one of the lines I put in it was, Newcastle are at their best when they're pressing from the front and they're allowed to do that and suddenly let them. And Miggy is always at the forefront of that. He's always the one who's going to give you more than anyone else off the ball. Um, you obviously you made a good point there about the tackles. Nine successful tackles. The closest player to him was Dan Bollard on four. You know, five more tackles than anyone on the pitch. He covered more grass than most of the Newcastle team. He obviously got that assist, which was a very good decision because I was surprised he didn't shoot at the time, but it was, you know, it turned out to be the correct call from him and a split second decision. Um Eddie Howe full of praise for him, as he always is, to be fair to Eddie. Um, he's never, ever, ever said anything else other than fantastic words. He said the other day that he's an incredible man. He's delighted from getting the assist. Um, and I'm really happy for him because the last couple of weeks especially, I don't know if he, I think he is on Twitter, but you know how much of it he reads, I hope. It's not a lot because the last couple of weeks, some of the stuff about him has been really, really disappointing. And that's natural because he's a right winger and, you know, he's only scored one domestic goal since October. It's natural. But um, as you said, he really, really needed to deliver a good performance. He did. We need to now hope that this is the catalyst for more, though he can't revert back to type or... You know, personally, I think he, you know, he's really still at risk. Well, we have to hope this is the catalyst for more from Newcastle as a whole. The last six weeks have been awful. And I'm going to have to ask a question which I don't think many people want to answer. I don't think many people want to ask this question. But just very early on in the show there, you described Sunderland as average. I've seen people describing them as League One and overachieving. So they're not very good. They're young. They're inexperienced. Newcastle have won 3-0. Let's be honest, on paper, when you compare the, the, the squad and you compare the ability, they should win. Does it paper over the cracks slightly, over what's gone over the last few weeks? Because if we're describing Sunderland as this bad and we're saying Newcastle should have won, it would have been an embarrassment had they not. Is it? Do, do, are, we, are, are we getting more excited than we should allow ourselves to be given the performances, performances against Luton and against Forest and Liverpool, which was awful as well? No, I, I don't think so because, you know, if we can't enjoy a derby in life, then what can we enjoy or a derby win? You know, no, no, I get, to, I, get that, get no I get that. But, but in terms, yeah, of, I, I in terms know, of looking at this I, I, game performance and thinking, right, Newcastle United are back. 
No, but are people really saying that? I haven't seen anyone saying that. And I think that we, I don't think we know for certain because, as you say, Newcastle United putting out pretty much their strongest team should have won that game comfortably 3 0. They probably should have won it more comfortably than they did, um, given the fact Sunderland decided just not to show up. The proof is going to be in the pudding when they play Manchester City, whoever they get next in the cup, and Villa. Because if they get absolutely spanked off Manchester City and they struggle against Villa, then we're going to be back to square one of, you know their league form has really, really suffered. At the minute, they can probably scrape by because they're only two points off seventh and five off sixth. That might be wrong, but it's something like that. They're not too far away. They're miles off the top four at present. So we're not going to know for a couple of weeks. It's either going to go back to type and they're going to get beat off City and they're going to struggle as they have done in the league or hopefully... What, what we all hope it's that it's going to be, and I mentioned it on Friday, it's going to be that Leeds United away game of 2022 where they got that win, it all clicked into place, they're back together. Um, big, big players to return, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Harvey Barnes is huge to give them another option up front. Um, so we don't know. Are they back? I couldn't tell you, but... Um, you you could get to May and hope Newcastle qualify for the Champions League once again, and then you pinpoint this result and performance as the turning point. That yeah. is what the hope has to be, and that's what I mean by we have to hope that this is just the start. The momentum yeah, is course. now is now going and refreshed by Eddie Howe's comments as well. He's clearly not going to get ahead on the stuff like some managers would, and he said this is a step in the right direction. Yeah, he knows there's work to do, and there isn't a, 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 any bigger test than what's to come well, this exactly. Saturday against yeah. Manchester City, where we will see if the two glaring holes in Newcastle's style of play have been fixed and that is the gap in the midfield and the targeting Dan Byrne down at left back but yes of course you enjoy the derby I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy the derby I'm just querying whether maybe we, we don't get ahead of ourselves given who's coming on Saturday I, I want to talk about something being back I'm going to say a rude word ladies and gents so if you've got any kids listening uh, I said it on the immediate aftermath podcast on Saturday I'm going to say it once again, so it's coming. One, two, three. The shithousery is back. <laughs> and that is something else that's been missing from Newcastle United in recent weeks. That nasty undercurrent that they've had under Eddie Howe, which is kind of shocking in one way because he's such a nice fella. <laughs> but it has been there, but it's also been missing in the last six weeks. Just the ability to wind up the opposition. Of course, it comes with results and form, doesn't it? You're not going to be um, a, a nasty so-and-so if you're losing games and if you're playing badly. So I accept that. But it was it was good to see it back. You've got the team photo at the end. You've got Anthony Gordon uh, telling hmm. the Sun defender that he can have the shirt at the end. You've got Dan Byrne going into the, to the stadium, cupping his ears, as you mentioned before. Just little bits which... Definitely have been missing. I've, I've, I've been feeling in, in recent weeks. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I mean, you've missed some big ones as well. Trip, you're pointing to the scoreboard after constant criticism. You had Bruno obviously fist pumping the crowd. You had Isaac running over and nearly knocking Dan Ballard off his feet. You had you had a lot. And I think there's only really one place to start. And it feels weird starting at the end of the game. But Jason Tindall, we were obviously looking, well, I was looking down from the, from the top of the stadium in the press box. And Jason Tindall was stood on the sidelines. And the, the game had just finished and he was calling all the players off the bench and all the staff off the bench. And obviously at this point, we didn't have any clue what he was planning. I thought, personally, oh, look at Jason Tindley. He's trying to get them all on the lap of honour. What a nice thought. And then obviously we see 30 seconds later, he's getting Serena, the club photographer over. He's getting them all to line up. Um, the, the best part for me has been trying to see Sunderland fans on, on Twitter, you know, claiming that they're not bothered. 
but then you know seemingly writing 10 or 15 tweets about it uh, about how you know it's small time and tin pot you absolutely love to see it don't you i mean that was just the cherry on the cake after saturday afternoon i wonder how long he's been planning that for since he since he got the job two years ago, <laughs> yeah. it's been it's been long in the in in the making. But yeah, I mean that is the kind of absolute. I say it again, bad word coming shit houseery that you, you you want to see from Newcastle. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's good to see it back because we, we we've definitely missed it. The Jacob Murphy waving and you know just winding up the opposition. Um, good to see it back. And let's talk about Kieran Trippier's performance because he needed. A good performance, he really did. He's been out of form as well, and when he's out of form, Newcastle United are out of form. I thought it was a real leader's performance, as I've mentioned earlier on the show, but his quality on the ball was there again. Plenty of crosses into the ball, good in the tackle, good in the organisation, and it all comes as well, like you say, with plenty of criticism and, and, and abuse from the stands as well, mm-hmm. but he took that on his shoulders and it was a perfect afternoon for him. He handled it very, very well, didn't he? I thought, I think it would have been very, very easy to lose your rag in that situation. Um, and given the fact that he's obviously been carrying something, he's obviously been massively out of form, you know, the worst run of form he's had since joining the club uh, two years ago. We were sort of disagreeing before the game, weren't we, about whether he should start. I was saying, you know, if there's a, if there's a 60%, 70%, you know, fully fit trip, yeah, then I think you go with him. Um and I think it, you know, it paid dividends. You know, people at the at the start of the game were saying, "Oh, he's gone with Dan Byrne again. He's, you know, he's gone with Trippier. Is he fit?" I thought they both had a very, very good game. Trippier especially. Um, but again, like we've just been talking about, as you know, I don't think we can say he's back yet. No. But I think that's definitely a step in the right direction. That'll have done his confidence to the world of good on Saturday. I've got to say, there was one moment that Dan Byrne got burned for yeah, the first me. half. Yeah, we, <laughs> were, sort of like, we were like, "Oh my goodness." Like, but yeah, I mean, he's living the dream, isn't he? Uh, winning uh, against Sunderland. But yeah, Trippier yeah, hopefully can get back to his best because Newcastle definitely need him. And again, looking at who they played across the back four, you would probably think that going forward, Eddie Howe's going to stick with this back four, which means Tino Livramento is, is going to have to uh, fight for his his place um, and, and probably do it from the bench. It certainly looks that way. I don't know if you know, Newcastle United fans are fully behind that decision, but... We know how loyal Eddie Howe is to, to certain players. We know that he's got real trust in this back four, um, given you know how far they took them last season. Dan Byrne, we obviously think maybe he's still carrying a little something from the back injury. We know that he obviously straps that shoulder up every game as well. He's a bit of a walking wounded. Sven Botman just back into the team. How fit can he be? Trip is out of form. There's definitely questions to be asked as to whether it's the right back four to have going forward. But I don't think it really needs that much discussion because I think we know Eddie Howe's going to play it. It's really, really harsh on Tino Livermento, who has been one of the shining lights this season. The only good thing you know, for him is the fact that he's so young, he will get his time, um, especially given how old Trippier and Byrne are, respectively. Um, got to spare a thought for Lewis Hall again, another game where we didn't see him. There was four substitutions made at the very end of the game and we didn't see him. Um, but yeah, I think I think you know that back same back five starts against City on a on Saturday night. We've got Jordy tune for life saying so easy up the top dogs of the North East. We've got Roger commenting on Miguel Almiron, and he doesn't seem to be a, a big fan. He says it shows Miguel Almiron's level. Oof, not a big fan at all there. We've got um, Ian saying that the, the Macams were awful. We must have watched a different match. Um, they were awful. 
don't think we've said. Oh yes, 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 probably is. Um, Northumberland Jory says derbies and cup ties are supposed to be a bit of a level, and Newcastle did a great uh, nullifying um, anything Sunderland had to offer. Roger and Les both agree that the game was better without VAR. Um, and we've also got Graham saying great win, decent performance, starting on the front foot, never in trouble. Um, however, he says Martin Dubravka made more saves. Praises Miggy as well for his energy levels. Uh, to kind of phrase says Miggy's form was clearly influenced by the return of Kieran Trippier. Yeah. You agree? Yeah, I would agree with that, definitely. And uh, Niall says great result, but in fairness, some of them are poor. We need to be creating a lot more chances against the calibre of opponents to come. And that again goes back to the point I was making earlier. Um, let's talk about Isaac. The new Mackham Slayer in town. Surely we will be in the end. So he, I think, will be quite glad to hand over his crown if he's I can find a, a few more goals against Sunderland, whenever that might be. I mean, he'll have to get promoted first um, for more derbies to come our way. But, you know, there was talk um, earlier this week about, about Isaac not being maybe the out and out striker you want. Can he really lead the line? Someone asked me. I mean, he proved this against Sunderland that he can be that out and out striker that Newcastle United need. Who on earth asked you that, by the way? I'm not. But somebody, you name names, but... But phew. someone did ask the question to whether he can be the... the you know, obviously, that's, you know, Callum Wilson's future at Newcastle yeah. is, is up for discussion. He might be sold in the summer, who knows? But they clearly need a striker who can play the majority of games. Is he Zach the man to do that? Well, two goals against Sunderland. If there are any doubters out there, it's a good way to, to shut them up. Yeah, I think, you know, Shola walked so Isaac could run. Very, very happy with Isaac's um, post on Instagram after as well. MS... Uh, with two swords, I think he's very. He's definitely got the memo about what a derby's about, hasn't he? Despite the fact that he's uh, obviously Swedish, very very good performance from him. I absolutely love um, how versatile he is in the sense that he can pick the ball up on the halfway line and take a couple of players on, and he's absolutely lethal in front of goal as well. Um, I think for Isaac, it's been one of those things where he's obviously had a couple of niggles this season. He's, Struggled with that groin injury at two or three occasions, and we're thinking, okay, we're really seeing the best of him in recent weeks. Maybe not very, very good on Saturday. Um, Obviously, you would expect him to be given the calibre of opposition and where he's come from, but really, really good. I thought, obviously, he took the second goal well. uh, No mistake with the penalty. Really, really confident performance. Um, But obviously, you know, no Wilson for Manchester City, potentially, you know, not for the FA Cup game as well. Um, you need to hope that, that he stays fit. It was an excellent finish for his first goal to get it into the corner. It was a beautiful finish, and the penalty is just really cool um, to put that at home in such a, a, a big game. Um, we've got uh, people saying the game is uh, the result will be a massive uh, confidence boost. Darren says, Good to see uh, Dubravka back in form. So he had a belter against uh, Liverpool. Want to talk about. Job Bellingham because he's meant to be the next big thing and I know he's a young lad so we don't want to put too much pressure on him um, but only 40 touches in the game only 20 passes and he only managed to win three of his 10 duels I mean for the next big thing he really didn't show up did he? No I mean it was um, you know he himself and Jack Clark were the two that Sunderland fans pointed to as being you know the men that could win them the derby obviously Patrick Roberts as well but he missed out altogether with a calf injury so you, they were really looking at Clark and Bellingham to step up um, and neither of them really did I thought Jack Clark looked you know absolutely is, is that because Bruno, Drillington and Longstaff just nullified the threat in the middle or did the occasion get the better of them or maybe a mixture 
I think a mixture of everything. I think, you know, they didn't really stamp their authority on the game. Bellingham especially. You know, I think I turned to you about, I don't even think I'm exaggerating that it was about 55 minutes into the game. And I turned to you and said, I completely forgot that Bellingham was on the pitch because he was so non-existent. Clark had flashes where, you know, he looked like he was trying to make stuff happen. But, you know, for those two being Sunderland's go-to men, you know, especially right. given their their striking struggles in terms of how they've got strikers that just can't put the ball in the net. Um, they, they'll be really, really disappointed with the performance. But there's obviously something there with Bellingham, you know, um, very, very highly rated at Birmingham. Obviously, Sunderland have, have done well to sign him, but, you know, you can maybe I was tell shocked. the inexperience. I was surprised at, at how, the stats. Uh, yeah, at how poor he was. I thought he was poor, but I was shocked at that. And obviously, I didn't want him to turn up because he clearly got a talent, but... I was I was looking forward to seeing him to a certain degree because of the hype, and he just he just didn't didn't do it all, did he? Uh, are you surprised at the stats in the sense that in the same way that I am that he actually got forty touches? <laughs> because I generally did not think he touched the ball four they're, they're, times. In yeah, they're, they're bad stats for someone who's meant to have a control of the game. I mean, twenty passes. I know some didn't have a, a huge amount of the ball, but you know he's got to try and impact the game a little bit better. But yeah, I mean Bruno. The Joel Linton long staff and then Miley to a degree all um, had their, their their bit to play in nullifying what is a young uh, Sunderland midfield and attacker and did an absolute uh, fantastic job of it. Um, I just also want to praise the um, the organisation of the derby. Actually, getting the fans to the stadium, I thought was absolutely superb. Uh, so ports to the police, ports to the two clubs and the fans were behaving as well because it went swimmingly. Yeah, and I mean, you were there, weren't you, for the majority of the day. You were at St James's Park very, very bright and early. Um, the sun hadn't even risen. Oh, see, that is the commitment to the content on the Chronicle Live website uh, and YouTube channel that fans just clearly don't appreciate as much as they should. Um, <laughs> but I think, obviously, as I say, you were there, you got to see it firsthand. I think you should maybe talk about what it was like and what the, you know, what it was like for the fans at St James's, and then when you got to the ground as well. Yeah, I mean, so there's a video on our YouTube channel which you can uh, have a look at, which kind of documents the whole day. But the, the mood outside the stadium was, was absolutely fantastic. Everyone in great spirits. I mean, it, it started to rain and everything, but it didn't dampen the spirits at all. The, the queue, yeah, I know it was it was on purpose. <laughs> the queue actually stretched all the way around past the old Bark and Stone. Um, shops. That's how far people were waiting, and they were waiting patiently. Um, some had coffee, some had a, a bit of booze on them, but everyone was just in really good spirits. And the people I spoke to, it's surprising how many people actually predicted three nil. Really? Yeah. Like I, the people I spoke to, I'd say about ninety percent of people predicted that Newcastle were going to win three <laughs> nil. We had some one one young lad who actually interviewed in Dortmund, and he remembered. Um, said six one, <laughs> so he was loving. That was his first derby, I think he said. Um, but yeah, the confidence was was there. But uh, and the other thing that, that 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 struck me as well, and I mean, I didn't need to be told this, but it was it was reaffirmed. The amount of people that give me the same answer when I said, "What does it mean to you?" and they just said, "It means everything." And for people who don't maybe understand that, people outside of the region who just look at this as. Uh, Oh, it's a derby, but it's not up there with Glasgow. It's not up there with me. Even the North London derby gets bigger press. I mean, it really is, and it does mean everything. And I'd love to be in the factories and the offices um, and, and see what the banter's going on now because uh, some Sunderland fans will definitely be uh, be getting it. My mates, who I actually bumped into in the Stadium of Light, we took a nice little selfie together to, to mark the moments, and he walked off towards his seat and he shouted back. He said, Andrew, turned around, and he held seven fingers up to us. I said, all right, 
it's been very quiet ever since. <laughs> very quiet. But that's kind of for me sums up what it means. Like you know, it's it does it means everything. It really does, and I I thoroughly enjoyed the day. I know I really that I've did. been I've been a little bit of a, uh, a Scrooge on it all, and you know I was nervous, and then, you know we were talking after the game. I said if there's not another one for ten years, that'll be fine because you know I can't go through those nerves twice a season. But there is a part of me that actually loved it. You know it is what football's about. You don't get the same feeling for any other Newcastle United game, even the Champions League games this season. I felt nowhere near as nervous at all to these games, and I think. Um, I think if for the neutrals watching around the country and, and just looking on social media, I think it reminded people how big this derby actually is. As you say, the North London derby, the Manchester derby, even you know games like Manchester United-Liverpool get so much hype, but there's nothing like a time we are derby. No, there's not. We've got Alan saying, kind of high hopes, working wonders still. <laughs> now, you might remember Alan, on the day of the takeover, I grabbed him outside St James's Park and he was drinking a beer called Can of High Hopes. <laughs> I think it was either his birthday or his retirement. He said it was the best present he could hope for at uh, the takeover. So nice to see you in the comments there. Um, but yeah, and then the good thing was as well, like the club had actually put on refreshments for the fans. Cereal balls as well, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, and there was there bottles of water and stuff. And then the scarves had been handed out. Just a nice little touch. They weren't just, the fans weren't just like caught onto the buses. Mm -hmm. The fans really did their most to make them feel kind of appreciated, I think is the right word. And then I hot-footed it to to the Stadium of Light with, uh, with the Daily Mail's Craig Hope, kindly give me a lift. Um, so we got the Stadium of Light and then we were just watching the buses come in and chanting on the buses. I saw uh, one chap I know get his car keys out and start jangling <laughs> them out the window. I thought, oh, we don't drop them, mate. Um, you know, but it just, it was just, there was just some atmosphere watching them come in. There's some of the fans did the best to, to, to pump up the atmosphere and obviously there was ch chance and, and, and everything. But as a whole, I think, I think the police and I think the clubs will be thoroughly um, happy with how things worked out. Very little trouble, if any at all. Probably the only of note is that the two silly lads who jumped onto the pitch at full yeah. time. Um, but everyone else seemed to be very well behaved. and Because and, there was a bit of worry, I think, about the, the whole the bubble journey. People weren't happy having to get up that early in the morning, having to get to the stadium for, uh, for, for so early. But actually... By the time most of the buses got there, you didn't actually have to wait that long, and it it really did seem to work a treat. Well, I was I was saying to you wasn't I last week that I was speaking to somebody I know who uh, used to be a, a riot copper for uh, for Northumbria, and he was saying that um, they called in four hundred police officers from neighbouring regions. Um, any leave that these police officers had was cancelled. They had to come in on the Saturday to be drafted in, and obviously, you know, for games like this, I can completely understand why they would have been worried but I think for there to be you know only minor incidents was really I mean it's, it's if anything had gone wrong it would have completely overshadowed it hadn't it and I think the way the club organised it yes fans maybe didn't want to be in the ground too early but you know there was refreshments on for them the bars were open I think it worked really really well mm, I think the only complaint is maybe getting the fans out yeah from the stadium back home a little bit quicker but those I say those will come in time but who yeah. knows when the next derby uh, might be has it what you uptight for a few more you, you, you said outside you could go another eight years I think I, I think I could go another decade without a derby why because look it's all smiles here but imagine how you'd be feeling right now if we'd be sat there talking about a Sunderland win yeah but then you just think about oh the next one will come around and we'll beat them then I don't know maybe I'm just a special kind of guy um Transfer market, it's open. 
Calvin Phillips is still the, the main man being pushed towards Newcastle, linked to Juventus as well. Eddie Howe again said you know nothing to update you about when he was asked about it in the press conference after Sunderland. Um, what are we thinking? Are we expecting some movement? Are we we thinking they're going to wait to the window to try and have a bit more bargaining power? Is that your, is that your theory? You think? I think they'll leave it as late as they can. Eddie Howe, you know says very very little of it we ask him every single week you know for any update and we sort of already know what we're going to get back um Eddie Howe knows he's going to get big players back in the next couple of weeks and I think he wants to see what the clubs are going to be like and I think also you know yes Newcastle United fans will want signings in but I also think it's going to be a very quiet month in the Premier League you know you've got Arteta coming out last night and saying we don't have the money to spend. It doesn't really look like Liverpool are going to go out and do too much business. Chelsea, or Chelsea, they will probably go and spend. And Tottenham are obviously look like they're making a couple of decent moves and you know trying to get Conor Gallagher and also Timo Werner. I think for Newcastle, um, we know that they don't want to spend too much this month. They want to keep their powder dry for summer. What I was just going to say there, because you mentioned Timo Werner, so, uh, Sunderland, Tottenham, I mean, Sunderland will wish. Tottenham seem to have this knack of finding players that they can get initially on loan with then the, the, the obligation to buy. I yeah. mean, I think it's 15 million obligation to buy yeah. is what I read. Now, obviously, he didn't do too well at Chelsea, but he's, he's, a, he's a clear talent. I'm, I'm sorry, I think it is a such a shrewd signing by Tottenham. I, I, no, I, I agree. Would, I would I agree. love Newcastle to have taken a punt on so him. So my, my question to you is then, we know that Newcastle are a little bit... Uh, restricted because of the FFP yeah. and it's likely that loan is probably the, the best you can hope for in, in this January unless things someone gets sold or what have you but how is it that Spurs are able to find these deals and and, and yet with Newcastle we're, we're not seeing it is it I mean it's not like they're targeting lesser players I mean Newcastle would take they would take um, who was the other chap that they signed in the summer he was on loan Tottenham. last season, yeah, from Juventus, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, Kulisewski. Signed him. He was initially on loan, so how was it working? I think what one thing, and, and anybody who listened to the podcast over the summer will, will probably have heard me saying this plenty of times, Dan Ashworth at Brighton certainly wasn't a fan of loan deals. You looked at the deals Brighton did, and they were signing very, very good players, and they'd loan them straight out. It's very, very rare that Dan Ashworth goes out hunting for the loan market. Now, saying that, Newcastle's situation is a little bit different with FFP. Um, I uh, Some fans will disagree with this, but I think Calvin Phillips on a loan deal makes sense for so many ways. Um, I think it makes sense for Newcastle and what they need. It makes sense for the player. It makes sense for Pep Guardiola in Manchester City. Does it? I, does I it think though? it really does. And I, and I can't get why somebody who spent the entire summer banging on about how number six was more important than anything is turning their nose up at a number six like Calvin Phillips. Yes, he's had his problems at Manchester City. Yes, he's only played 89 minutes of domestic football that's, but that's this exactly season. that's the reason. How can he come to Newcastle United and hit the ground running? How long does Eddie Howe give him before he's up to scratch? You know, the season could be but, off. You could, only, you could lose the second half of the season before he's up to scratch. But let's not pretend he's, he's like, he's not fit at all. I mean, he played two weeks ago for Manchester City in the Champions League. He, you know, we're not going to be sitting here you know, saying he's going to need two or three months to get things. I think give him two weeks and he'll be up the speed. I'm sorry, right? And I do trust those in Newcastle making decisions to get it right. That's the one thing that I that I clutch to when people mention Calvin Phillips that the history of, so far of those making decisions, they pretty much got everything spot on. 
But on the flip side, I look at Calvin Phillips at Manchester City, and when Rodri is out, Pep Guardiola plays Lewis in that midfield instead of Calvin Phillips. Very good player. That, for me, he, but he's a fullback. So if that, for me, says a lot, and people say, oh, wow, you know, you know, Phillips couldn't get into to the best side in the world, but doesn't mean he's a poor player. Okay, I accept that. If you were talking about another centre mid, you know, that defensive midfielder playing ahead of him when Rodri's not available, then fair enough. But he's playing a young fullback ahead of him. Yeah. Something's not right there. But, but but and Guardiola's came out on the record and said this. We're talking about Manchester City team who play probably one of the most difficult systems in world football. Pep Guardiola, who you know develops and creates and changes these, you know ridiculous formations and sometimes players just can't get it and Guardiola's said just as much um, and Guardiola's tried and he's failed and for whatever reason it hasn't worked out I think you've just got to look back at the fact that two years ago Calvin Phillips was the absolute shining light in that Leeds team under the right manager in the right system I think he I think it's so risk well it's not risk free but it's so low risk to do the deal in January I can't it's understand not low risk. but it is though because we're not talking about Newcastle United going out and signing a 50 million pound midfielder who has really struggled at Manchester City we're talking about um them going out and getting a number 6 who wants to leave his current club who could who on his day could do a job in this side and they wouldn't have to pay, they they'd have to pay a significant chunk of his wages and maybe what, six, seven million at the end of the season if things go right? It's so but low risk. Newcastle United can't afford to, to get it wrong, in my opinion. They need a defensive midfielder in to fill that gap. They go out and spend seven and a half million on Calvin Phillips to bring him in. If he, if he, the sign him in the... Oh, sorry, the, loan, on yeah, loan. the loan for yeah, yeah. And then he takes three, four weeks to get match fit or it doesn't happen or he breaks down I just think it is I think it's a massive I do think it's a massive gamble yeah, but, Phillips in. well speaking of a massive gamble and pardon the pun but they've went out and signed 60 million pounds on a midfielder in the summer and he's been suspended for a year sometimes these things happen you know there's risks with every transfer ever but low risk it's not low risk of course it's it? low risk because they're not spending any they're not spending any real transfer fee so it's risky in the sense that, yes, he's bang out of form and maybe he's not as fit as Eddie Howe would want him to be, but it's so low risk in the sense that it's not a massive outlay for them. It's a position they really need. The player would likely want to come. I think I I can't understand. But Look, don't get me wrong. I don't, I, I'm not saying, not banging the drum saying Calvin Phillips is the man to save Newcastle, but I just think it. I can't understand why people like yourself and others are so, so against it. I just think, it's likely to be one signing only this summer, uh, this January, sorry. So they need to get it right. And for me, I think there's, 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 there's too much wrong with Calvin Phillips to be confident that it's the right signing. Again, you know, they've done their homework, obviously. They've done their research, so you back them 100%. This is just my personal opinion. But I just do think there's more red flags there than, than, than leave me comfortable. So who, who would you go out and sign in that position instead? Because I'm going to do what you, you did over the third signing. Give me give me names. Give me realistic names on loan or for, you know, cheap as chips. I will come back to you. Okay. Well, we can, we can do another podcast. Monday show okay. with names and a list. Well, one thing before we move on from Calvin Phillips. Um, Guardiola was asked over the weekend if there was any movement. And he said that he's been um, ill in the last couple of weeks, which will only add to your fears. Because if he's ill, then, you know, he, he might take a couple of weeks to get back up to speed. So... 
I think that one, as we've said, I think Newcastle will try and wait as long as they can this window before pushing the button or anything. And I think Phillips as well will maybe have to wait. Given there's four teams after him and he, he might not be uh, might not be well at present. Graham says Phillips will be brilliant and especially if he brings Leeds form with him. Thank Could be you, our Graham. David Batty. Also may start as a loan, but will stay long term. I think Phillips will love and thrive playing here. Yeah, if he finds that Leeds form, then yeah. But I mean, there's no guarantee that's going to happen at all. Um, we've got Les saying, I agree with Andrew. Major red flags with Phillips. But again, in Eddie, we trust. Um, Alex says he can't give names on on the spot. Prices. Well, I'm, I'm not just going to give any names. I'm going to come back and... And and do and give you proper names. Um, so tune in for next week, Alex, and you'll see the list that I, that I give you. Um, any other transfer business? You think it's that? That's probably the, the one and only. I mean, there's top on Sean Longstaff. Portly might be up for being sold. To yeah, F- FFP. I can't see that happening. Um, a report in the Sun over the weekend um, from transfer journalist Alan Nixon, um, who says that Newcastle are open to selling some. Um, academy graduates given that it would be pure profit on the books uh, with FFP he then goes on to very vaguely say that Sean Longstaff is attracting interest uh, from Premier League clubs with a loan to buy agreement which I can't really see Newcastle United doing um, I mean one we haven't even spoke about which came out over the weekend Eddie Howe was obviously asked about it by Lee Ryder on Friday's Bruno PSG seemed very very keen on getting him um, again I think uh, I did a 2024 prediction article on, on around New Year and one of the predictions I had was that I think Newcastle will lose a big name this season but I think it'll be in the summer and I think the only question is is, is it going to be Bruno? I think he's probably at the top of the list um, and I think that's why the end of the season is so crucial because if they don't finish in Europe it's going to be so much harder to you know fend the likes of PSG, Manchester City off from players like Bruno and Isaac and Botman. So big couple of months there in that regard as well. Certainly is, and the Bruno one's really interesting. I think if someone came in with a £100 million bid, there would be plenty of people reluctantly considering selling Bruno. I think it would be vitally important that they got the majority of that fee up front, though, so then they could go and really have a rebuilding project. You know, West Ham have proven that you can sell your best player for 100 plus million and then go and reinvest it in four or five brilliant players and if Newcastle have to end up doing that and they end up losing Bruno as much as no one wants that to happen but then they can have the success that West Ham have had uh, this season and and, and invest it properly and carefully it it might not be the worst thing in the world yeah 100% I think think fans are aware of that I think it was funny I saw some fans on Saturday night after Bruno's fantastic performance against Sunderland saying I take it all back Never let them leave. And I think that will be the sentiment from a few, but I think a lot of people understand that if a, an offer of that amount came in, I, I think it would be very, very tough to turn down. As, as sad as that is, because obviously I would love Bruno to stay. Or, you know, I mean, there's nothing to say that by the time the summer rolls round, it's not someone like Joe Linton trying to attract an offer like that. I mean, we know Liverpool very, very keen on him in the past. I don't know whether you'd get £100 million from. Here's a question for you. I saw people talking about on social media. I think I know what you're going to say, and I've got an answer. Would you rather sell Joe Linton or Bruno? Bruno. I agree. I agree. And I, I've just said that to a colleague in the office an hour ago, and he was really, really surprised. I would sell Bruno over, over Joe Linton. Same. I think Joe Linton is the engine room of that midfield. Without him, they don't look the same. The physicality's lacking. For me, it was him that stood out 
in that first half over anybody else against Sunderland. I know people will say, well, without Bruno, Newcastle don't win games. That's something they've got to overcome. But if it was one or the other, I'd be keeping Joe Linton or Bruno. That that sounded really flippant for me as if it was a Joe Linton straight away. It would be a very, very hard call. I love them both. But um, I just think Joe Linton offers something that very, very few midfielders do. You know, an absolute machine in the middle. Um, and yeah, look, I, I think... Joe Linton, Bruno, Botman, Isaac, um, there'll be a lot of suitors for them in the summer, especially if Newcastle don't, you know, get Champions League or Europa League. Yeah, and I guess, you know, that's what Newcastle fans have to accept, that big names will end up going at some point just so they can reinvest and, and, and hopefully improve. We saw it with Andy Cole back in the day, no one expected him to go to Manchester United, but the decision was made. We've seen it in other teams, like I said, Declan Rice and West Ham. As long as the money's reinvested properly, it, it, it can prove beneficial um, we've got plenty of people actually saying Joe Linton would be their pick to stay Niall saying Joe Linton is irreplaceable Gary saying Joe Linton is the linchpin and plenty of praise as well for West Ham and what they've done in the summer transfer market um, right trivia time are you ready yep so there was a long list of players who played for both Sunderland and Newcastle okay I'm not going to ask you to name the whole list because it is about 25-30. What I am going to ask you to do, though, is to name those players who have played for Newcastle and Sunderland, not necessarily in the time we had Derby, but have played for both sides. Mm-hmm. We're going to go back to 1990. Okay, so from 1990 all the way up to the present day, can you name the players to have played for both Newcastle and Sunderland? And there are 23 that I want you to name. 23? I mean, I'm going to get absolutely nowhere near. From 1990, there's been... 23 yeah so I mean shall I give you the ones I don't think you, shall I give you the early ones because bless give me, you give me the early ones you yeah, weren't you weren't around um, at these points so we've got Paul Bracewell is one of them uh, we've got Barry Venison is the other and I threw in Chris Waddle there as well the rest of them okay I'll give you David Kelly as well um, but the rest of them are all recent um, you know you should get these I think okay you were young for for probably half the names on this list but players you would have heard of and again I'll reaffirm um, they didn't necessarily play in a, a, derby, a derby for both these clubs okay. but they played for both these clubs okay right well we'll go with we'll go with Jack Colback yep we'll go with Lee Clark yep we'll go with Michael Chopra yep we'll go with Titus Bramble look at this he's on a roll and that is where the roll comes to an end because really? that's where do you want some clues yeah come on give me some so you've got two goalkeepers in this list Oh, uh, Given and Harper. I got three actually, yeah. But they they are two then. Yeah. They're the two. You got them two. Another one who actually played for Newcastle. Um, he played it in a derby for Sunderland, then he moved to Sunderland. Uh, moved to Newcastle not late after that. Played in that wonderful lime green shirt. Lionel Perez. No. Okay, we've um, we've got you know, an American fullback. Also played for Spurs. Jondre uh, Yedlin. We've got uh, another fullback who played for Spurs. Played at left back. Oh, um. You'll find him in the garden. You'll find his surname in a garden. No, oh, don't don't say that because that's just throwing us off. Because I had him there. Um, <laughs> Came nah, on loan no, from Newcastle. It's, it's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Danny Rose. Yeah, no, that wasn't who I was thinking of. Actually, to be fair. You've got a striker who played for Fulham, played for Manchester United. Uh, Louis Saha. You've one. got another fullback who won the Premier League with Leicester. 
Danny Simpson. Yeah, you've got another full-back that Rafa Benitez brought in from... Mankiel. Steve Bingham from Sunderland, perhaps? Yeah. You've got um, a midfielder who played for Swansea City as well as both Newcastle and Sunderland. Um, Key, Sunderland. Yeah. You've then got a striker who we've actually just mentioned before on this in this very discussion about big players being sold. Um... Have we? We have. Kevin Keegan had to come out on the stage. Oh, uh, Andy Cole, sorry. Andy Cole. I think it was probably his last uh, club. You've got a Chelsea left-back who's on loan. I think he was on loan at both clubs, actually. Uh, that is Patrick Van Anhol. That's the one. You've then got a centre-back who had a brother who also played for Newcastle. Uh, Stephen Cole. That's the one. This one... I had to actually double check this because I was I was it caught me off guard. You've got a left back who was a major part of Kevin Keegan's entertainers squad. He also played for Newcastle under Sir Bobby Robson, but he also played for a season for Sunderland. He's also got a namesake as a former Newcastle United goalkeeper, who's now in charge of Gateshead. Oh, uh, Robbie Elliott. Yeah, played for Sunderland for a season. I didn't know that. Um, and the last one is. Well, i quite shocked at this one as well. Um, he's got a relative who was a major part of Super Bowl Robson's team, played up front, was a big fan of doing front flips oh, and back flips. Um, the, oh, well, hang on, ca carry on what you were saying because I think I've jumped the gun there. Well, or was that it? That was it. I mean, Martins didn't play for Super Bowl Robson. No, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't okay. thinking Martins. I was thinking um, it's Carl Court. Was it no. Luwalawa? But it's the cousin. But the cousin's really surprising, isn't it? But I can't think. Senga Luwalawa played for Sunderland. Oh, okay. According to my research, I mean, all, I mean, the names go back way back. You've got the likes of um, Stan Anderson for those who are into the Newcastle United history. Um, actually, I've missed out. Daryl Murphy played for Sunderland. Missed out that one. You have got Bobby Monker as well. He moved off to Sunderland. Pop Robson's another one. Um, Billy Whitehurst. David Young, Tommy Gibb, Alan Foggin as well. So plenty of uh, people who have crossed the divide between Newcastle and Sunderland. Enjoy that? Yeah, good one, that. You actually did quite well on there. Thank you. I mean, a lot of it was because of my brilliant clues. <laughs> I mean, it was, find a him, it was a team effort. Find him in the garden, I thought it was a tremendous I was clue. thinking, just a spade. <laughs> that was the first thing I get right. Goodness me, you can tell you've not got green fingers, Aaron. Um, this has been the Everything is Black and White podcast. Thank you very much, guys, for tuning in. Give the video a thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. Share it amongst your cast night support and friends and family. And if you're listening on the podcast channel, please give us a rating and a review. Leave some nice words because it helps grow the audience. Thank you to everyone who's joined in. Head over to chroniclelive.co.uk for all the latest Newcastle United news.